Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. All right, welcome back, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. Today is episode four with a focus on vaccinations, especially in the state of Ohio. With me today, I have Melissa Worthy Arnold with the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Ohio chapter. She is the CEO of that chapter. And Melissa, what do you do in your role as CEO? So I guess I get to be sort of jack of all trades in my role. We have a lot of programs that we provide in education, um, whether that's to pediatricians directly, to other healthcare providers such as nurse practitioners, nurses, community health workers, pharmacists, you name it. We probably provide some kind of training in it around um, anything and everything in child health. So I spend a lot of my time administering those programs, finding new funding for some of those programs, going out in the community and sharing what we do and and sharing best practices of pediatrics. And then I spend another part of my time doing a lot around advocacy work in and out of the state house or in meetings with different influencers in the state of Ohio, just to make sure that we're keeping kids in Ohio safe and healthy. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, As a pharmacist myself, I'm a huge pro-vaccine person. I've seen what they can do. And some of the listeners might know me and my wife are expecting. So this is one thing that I want to take a huge stance on to help keep our future kids protected from the, the ravages of the diseases that vaccines protect us against can do. What other roles or positions do you have? So I, I guess one of the things that, you know, our board really felt passionate about was that we didn't operate in a vacuum, in a sort of medical vacuum of just pediatrics. I also serve on various committees for the state, some sort of appointed, and others in a, a nonprofit role. So I spend a lot of time with different community organizations sort of being out and about there as well. Some social service agency boards and things like that, just to kind of keep my, my hand on the pulse of what's going on, you know, outside the, the walls of my office. Yeah, that's super important, especially with vaccines. It seems like every day something's popping up in the news, whether someone's for them, someone's against them, there's some new study. It just seems like it's always like one of those hot button issues these days, which is a little ridiculous to me since I'm so pro-vaccination on some of this stuff. Well, and it's nice sometimes to be surrounded by people who are sort of like-minded as you, right? So we have the Immunization Advocacy Network of Ohio. I know you've been to those um, those events and meetings, it's great to get to, together with people like that who say, you know, have you thought about this? Or, you know, we're looking at immunizations in the lens of, you know, primary care or in a hospital setting, but you have public health departments there. So talking to them about what they're doing out in the community is amazing to sort of hear what they're doing. You know, they always know things that we don't always know. They hear directly from, you know, patients and families when there's a problem. Um, we'll have legislators ask us things like, you know, when you talk about vaccines, is there an access problem? And I said, you know, I hear that from the opposition, but then when I meet with the public health departments, they tell me all the amazing things they're doing in their community. You know, they have mobile units, they're in schools, they're targeting schools, they're, you know, targeting areas, and they're doing all this great work. So it's helpful to kind of be in those circles. So when I hear things that are totally myths about what's going on, I'm able to combat that with, you know, the facts that I get from from people who are, you know, the boots on the ground, so to speak. Oh, yeah, for sure. And one interesting thing was I kind of went down to the IANO, Immunization Advocacy Network of Ohio, meeting in March, and I was the only pharmacist there, which I thought was pretty unique and pretty weird at the same time, because most conferences I go to, like you said, I'm surrounded by other pharmacists. I'm not the only one. There was tons of nurses there. There was also a bunch of doctors, a few legislators, but I thought that was kind of a different angle I brought to it, and I actually was able to take stuff back myself from being the only pharmacist there, and that's kind of kind of why I want to do this episode because I feel like it's something that pharmacists can step up a little bit more and help support some of the work that you guys are doing there with the uh, the, the pediatrics. 
No, I mean, I think it does. It definitely brings a, def, a different perspective and a great one because, again, it's someone who's out in the field doing this. I think for a lot of those type of events, I think in the world of vaccines, we find most people I know, they only know as much as they really know about vaccines because they hear me constantly jabbering at them about why they're so important and all the issues. But people will say to me all the time, you know, I, I just, my children were born. I vaccinated them because that was a recommendation my doctor made, and I moved on with life. So I think even at, you know, advocacy events, you found the people who were there were, you know, people who were really involved passionately on some of these issues. So you have, you know, the public health nurses, school nurses, and you had, you know, some representatives from our organization from the Ohio chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. You had family physicians there. So you had some people who have been working on these issues. But if you just, you know, ask people in general, you know, do you do a lot around vaccine advocacy? People are like, dude, is that even a thing? Do I need to do that? Isn't that just what, you know, the CDC works on and the State Department of Health works on? I think a lot of people have this assumption that that work is just being done. Oh, yeah. And they don't know that there's all the, there's actually all this behind the scenes opposition. Our rates are dropping in terms of our vaccine rates. I think, you know, the general public doesn't know that. There's a really loud voice in terms of the anti-vaccine movement. But the sort of pro-vaccine movement is sort of quiet because it's, and it's the majority. I mean, we know that the majority of people, well over the majority of people, actually vaccinate their children. But they just, you know, they do it and they move on with life. Oh, yeah, for sure. In fact, it was kind of funny because when I was going over some of the stuff with my wife and we were talking about vaccinations, I was like, when's the last time you had a Tdap shot? She was like, uh, wait a minute. I'm like, okay, we got to make sure that we're not like, you know, we're up to date with ours if we're going to tell the people they need to be up with theirs. So, right, um, right. So with some of that, you kind of hit on it that the vast majority of Ohioans get their vaccinations. I believe it was 90% or 90, just over 90% had gotten the MMR vaccine. Where do you see with the current state of vaccinations in Ohio? Is it a good one? Is it a rosy picture? We're really good. Are we on the lower side? Where do we kind of stand as a state? So we're on the lower side. I always tell people, you have to think back. When I started, I've been at the academy for 14 years. My second year here, we were number three in the nation. So third best in the nation with our rates. It was exciting. We had press conferences about it. Everyone was really excited to see that. And then over the past, now, 13 years, our numbers have just steadily declined. So our actual rate for, if you look at children, we look at children in a couple different segments. We look, one, by the time they're in kindergarten. By the time they're in kindergarten, like with measles, like you mentioned, we're at about 90%. But the rate, the area that we look at the most, because it's when kids are really, really vulnerable, is before the age of three. So we're looking at between basically 18 and 35 months of age. And we measure that rate at that 35-month mark. And the last rate that they published, they only have us at 66%. So when I say we were third best in the nation in 2006, we were at 75. So it's a a pretty significant drop. Um, And there's a lot of things that, you know, we can say we know contributed to it. We had for a period of time due to some some administrative sort of legal ruling uh, back around 2000 and I think it was 2007, 2008, they got rid of the child care immunization requirement because there was some technical wording they were concerned about. So we had to reinstate that. So we did that back in 2014. And then we added meningitis to the the school requirements for vaccines. We also added Tdap um, with the help of the the Kasich administration to basically the adolescent series. So the 11 to 12 year old kind of visit. That's now a school school age requirement as well because of persistent outbreaks we've been seeing. So we've done some things to get things better, but there's also, you know, this continued distrust of science and facts and data um, around immunizations. So, you know, and I, I always say to people, this whole measles outbreak over the last year has been really telling. When, you know, in 2000, the United States had considered measles eradicated. 
So we didn't have them. We weren't worried about them. And then, you know, that was all around the same time that the fake study came out from Andrew Wakefield tying immunizations to autism and all of that happened. And people stopped vaccinating for getting the MMR vaccine. So it wasn't, I mean, it's not that huge a surprise to me that that's the outbreak we've seen. People have said, well, why haven't we seen polio come back? Well, nothing's been tied to the polio vaccine, but, you know, that false study was directly tied to the MMR vaccine. So it didn't really surprise me that it would be one of those. And we had a mumps outbreak here a few years ago in the central Ohio region. Um, we had it at Ohio State and in one of our school districts. So, you know, that's where we're sort of seeing these outbreaks. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're steadily declining. We're not improving, even though we're passing some laws. And I, so I think, you know, we have to take a hard look at what's actually going on. Because with something like measles, we actually need a 95% rate to protect everyone, to achieve what we call herd immunity. So usually it's about 90%. But with measles, because it's so highly contagious, you actually need to be at 95%. So we're not there. So, you know, we have one documented case in Ohio right now. The measles, you know, spread has kind of calmed down for a little bit, but most public health officials feel it's going to come back. So it's... As soon as people start getting sick again, summer's over, kids are back in school, college students are back around each other, people are around each other more, that you're going to see some of these rates, you know, some of these cases go back up again. That's a really good point. And we haven't done anything really to change things. Yeah, that's a really good point about going back to school. And I didn't even think about that necessarily as, especially college kids too, going back and then being exposed to it all again, whether it be in the dorms with meningitis more or less, or, you know, some of the little kids being exposed to uh, the measles as you were, you know, really concerned about. And you hit a really good number. I was glad you brought that up, that 95% factor to get herd immunity. Uh, One thing that I know that some of the bills have, or I think every bill has included, is a medical exemption for kids who have like autoimmune diseases or some sort of issue like that where they shouldn't get the vaccine, especially something like MMR where it's a live vaccine, as opposed to like Tdap where it's a not a live vaccine, right. a, an attenuated vaccine, if you will. And you hit on, I think the number now is around 1,200 or 1,225 cases of measles in the U.S. just in 2019. It's the worst year on record since, do you remember, it's like the mid-90s, early 90s? Yeah, so it's been like almost 30 years since, or 20 plus years since we've seen these kind of numbers before. The one scary thing about that to me was up until this year, the largest outbreak I know was actually in Ohio. I think it was in, was it Portage County? It was up in um, like Holmes County Holmes and County. yeah, that area. So yeah. it was up in Amish country, basically. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was a big outbreak, but everyone, you know, it, it, we had the Disneyland outbreak too that happened right after the one happened here. And everyone talked about the Disneyland outbreak because it sort of spread, and everyone here thought, oh, well, it's a small community. It, you know, it's just one community that it happened to. We were actually really fortunate that it was the Amish community because they don't travel as much. They do kind of stay together. If someone had gone on a mission trip overseas and had come back with it, that's how it spread. You would spread it just as easily in Columbus, Cleveland, Cincinnati as they did there. It's just that it was contained oh, because yeah. that population tends to stay in, in that area. So actually, we were really, really fortunate. But no one talks about, you know, that outbreak. And it was it was three times larger than the Disneyland outbreak. Yeah, it was around, I think, a hair over 300 people. It was the total final number. And I yeah. know I was looking up, it cost the state something something around $5 million just to the state of Ohio in direct cost. And as somebody who right. tries to watch the fiscal side of things a little bit, I thought that was really impressive when you see the dollar sign with it. And that was just to try and keep it contained within an already pretty contained community. The, right. one, the one thing that I kind of worried about, too, is with the Amish country or the Amish outbreak was how many people go down to visit Amish country for a weekend or go to get some Amish made furniture or something like that where they do come out or people do go into their community. And what could that have done if we didn't work so hard to contain it? 
that's what kind of scares me about some of that. But yeah, right. th- thanks for uh, filling me in on some of the other aspects of that. And I, you're right. I totally forgot about the Disneyland one. I was worried about more of the Ohio one. So with that, what are some of the the biggest issues you see? Is it just that one study and some of the anti-vaxxers as you're seeing? Or what's the biggest issue I, that the state is seeing as a whole for the vaccines? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a couple of different things. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges we have from a public health standpoint is we have a lot of missing data on what's going on. We have things like an immunization registry. It is not mandatory that everyone enters into it. And for a long time, it had some real big challenges with interfacing with people's EMRs, so their electronic medical records. And so physicians who wanted to enter into the registry enter it twice. So they have to enter it into you know, the child's health record, and then they would also have to enter it into the state's record. So some did it and some did not. So we, don't, we can't pull our current immunization registry and look and see exactly how many are vaccinated. And then when you do things like look at schools, so schools are a great way to kind of get everyone on board. So I, I mentioned earlier, you know, we look at rates from that 35 months. But then by the time we get to kindergarten, our rates improve because by the time you're going to school, we do have school mandates in Ohio around vaccination. The challenge with our vaccinations is back in 2005, we added the chickenpox vaccine to the school mandate. And when we did that, they changed the requirement that said you could opt out of vaccines for medical reasons, so medical contraindications, as well as religious reasons. That's what it, that was the law back then. They added the word, they, they changed the religious component to say philosophical exemptions, you know, reasons of conscience, including religious. So they changed how that was worded, which basically gives anyone a green light to say, I don't want, I just don't want the vaccine. At the time, that's 2005, that was really the height of the Andrew Wakefield scare. They had not yet come out with a study that proved he had lied. He had taken money from lawyers, basically, to, to win cases around parents suing vaccine manufacturers. All of that stuff, you know, no one knew any of that. So it was the height of the scare. People, you know, the rates of autism were climbing. That study had come out. Everyone was talking about it. People were upset. We, you know, our bill passes and they, they sneak that in there. We are now only one of 16 states that has that reasons of conscience in our law. And then out of those 16, we are one of eight that doesn't require you to do any kind of documentation about that exemption. And when I say that, I mean Michigan, for example, allows for parents to opt out for reasons of conscience or philosophical reasons, but they require them to sit down and go through a one-hour class at the Department of Health to basically ask for that opt-out. We've never proposed that that kind of class in the state of Ohio, although for them it did result in a 35% decrease the following year of their opt-outs. Oh, wow. That's a huge um, number. It's a huge number. And so what they know happens is, you know, some people, it's just they have a lot of questions and they don't have an opportunity to actually speak to a healthcare provider who could actually provide them with vaccine data. There are other people who are never going to vaccinate, and we know that. They're, you know, the true skeptic, and, and, that, and that's fine if they want to be that way. We actually don't, when you look at things like herd immunity, which is, you know, getting enough people vaccinated to protect everyone from the disease, they're a small enough group. True anti-vaxxers are probably about 3% of the population. That's what we've been told based on the data that we do have. Then there's this whole catchment area of people who just don't have you know, the vaccine's documented or they don't, you know, they don't say if they have an exemption or not. So I think one of the biggest challenges we have as a state is we don't have that accurate data. So if you go to school, you are required to turn in a form to go to enter school and to show what, that you've been vaccinated because that's a state mandate or that you are choosing to exercise your right to opt out. The concern on the philosophical exemption is if I'm just really busy and I don't have time to go to the doctor, I can just say that I have a philosophical exemption. I can just not turn a form in. And we have the latest data that the Ohio Department of Health showed us. It's about, it's every year, it's about 10 to 12% of just unknown. We just don't know about them. So 3% are reporting opt-outs 
And then this other 12%, we have no idea they, they, if they're vaccinated or not. And then the rest of them are, are vaccinated. So that's that gap area. So that 15% is a problem for us. And until we you know, address it, it's, it's going to continue to be a problem. So I think that's a big problem. I think the internet is somewhat of a problem. You can put anything out there on social media. I have two teenagers. They come to me with things all the time <laughs> that they find on the internet and ask me questions. And I'm like, oh, you know, none of that is true. Or look at this site. You know, don't, don't, don't believe everything you see. Go to a trusted, reliable source. Well, people don't do that. And, you know, when you're having kids, congratulations again for um, thank you about you know you and your wife expecting you'll see this you know you'll, you're worried I mean you want to do everything you can to protect this this person and you know how can you do that and you hear things you hear stories and you get worried and people put false information out there and you don't know what to believe or not to believe and I think they've they've you know scared a lot of people with completely false data even when you testify at the state house you know people say things you know my child suffered an adverse reaction if you push some of those people and say I'm, you know, I'm terribly sorry to hear that. What did your child experience from having a vaccine? Oh, they're autistic. Okay, well, we know that's not true. We know that that wasn't caused by vaccines. You know, even Autism Speaks has come out and said that. You know, all the big autism groups have said that's ridiculous, that's crazy, it's wrong. We do not believe that vaccines, you know, cause autism. They'll still tell you that because they believe it. So if, if you're not paying attention to this whole debate and someone tells you that, you know, you're afraid as a parent. You know, you don't want to do something that is going to harm your child. You know, so I think that's our biggest challenge is for sure that we don't have enough data. It's confusing. So it's hard even from a public health standpoint to attack that data because we know the data we are collecting isn't 100% accurate. And then the next, I would say the next biggest problem is, you know, the scare tactics that the anti-vaccine movement uses. And then there's just not a lot of people on the other side of the debate who have a lot of time or energy or effort that they put into fighting it. You know, we don't, none of my friends who are pro-vaccine spend hours a day you know, posting things online about how great vaccines are. They just vaccinate their kids and move on with life. You're totally right on that. In fact, a lot of my friends actually give me a lot of a lot of grief, especially my non-pharmacist friends, because of how much when the flu shot com- kind of comes around, I kind of always post stuff out there to remind everyone to get it just because it's, mm-hmm. it's that time of year where I like to try and bring awareness to it because, hey, you can get your flu shot. You can also get, you know, this one or this one or whichever ones you need to catch up with it in case you are missing them. And as a pharmacist, that's kind of like right in my realm of, of working with that. Not as much the pediatric side, but we're kind of like synced with you guys. We address more of the adults when you look at the numbers. You guys obviously do the kids, but they're, they're key to work together to get that. And I totally feel you. And I bet you most people listening to this podcast probably understand what you're saying when people go online and come in, come up with stuff. Because working with the public, I get some of the craziest stuff you've ever heard of. I read on the internet that, and you're just like, what? How does that even make sense? So yeah, I think that, that that is a huge thing. And the other thing is the internet creates a heck of an echo chamber. So me being a little bit of an advocate, but liking to see the other side of things, I actually follow a couple anti-vax groups on Facebook just because I want to know, like, what are they saying? And it's so funny to see like how they post stuff and their work that they put in with a small group of people to try and disseminate some information that is just one, usually completely false or two, very misleading at best. And they work so hard to try and get that out there. This very small, concentrated group of people. And it's kind of comical to me that you're like, you have to fight so hard just to try and prove something and you're still only 3% of the population. Right. I think that kind of really Well, and, and I think, you know, that's the thing. If you actually have a conversation with a lot of these families, when you share the actual data, a lot of people go ahead and vaccinate. But they're just skeptical as well. Yeah. So there's just a lot of buzz and conversation. I have friends who vaccinated their children for everything, but, you know, they won't do HPV. You know, so it's a cancer vaccine. Yeah, that's, you know? that's one How that's been great. do that, right? And they'll say, oh, no, I read all these people have died of the HPV vaccine. 
Not one has. Yeah. I was like, that is blatantly false information. No, I read it online. I was like, well, you can go to the CDC's website and they're going to tell you. That's not true. Or people will say, I don't want it to cause sterility in my child. That is not a side effect at all. <laughs> that's not if anything, that's that a side effect of the disease. <laughs> right, exactly. That's what I say. If you don't want your child to you know, become sterile, then you should vaccinate them because that could happen with cervical cancer. Or, yeah. you know. And so you know, they don't, people don't realize that. And they believe it because they've seen it over and over again. And so even people who will vaccinate for most things sometimes won't do certain ones. And like I said, for a long time, they wouldn't do the MMR vaccine because that was the one tied to, you know, potentially causing autism. Now it's this, the one that we see now that they don't do is HPV. Yeah, and I thought that was pretty interesting. And then there's a bunch of people who won't do flu. You mentioned flu. Oh, yeah. There's um, who won't do that either. Flu is obviously a bad one for some of the older people and people like that. But uh, these other ones are really serious, especially like the HPV one. I've I read a study out of Australia that basically they're on path, if I remember correctly, to all but eliminate cervical cancer in their population yep. down there. And when you're talking about, okay, we actually found a vaccine to prevent cancer. Like, let that line sink in a little bit. We found a vaccine to prevent cancer. Why would you not want that? Right. Yeah. And and to your point. Exactly. And to your point, too, about the hesitancy, I sat in with a, a my center was Matt Dolan up here. And when I was down there with IANO, I actually kind of took my own packet to him with my own data in there, kind of showing what some of the states have done, like California and Mississippi, which got rid of the personal exemptions. And I can't remember, they might have also got rid of religious exemptions, too, because from what yeah. I have In California, they got rid of everything but medical. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah. And they saw a huge spike in how many more kids are vaccinated and thus achieving herd immunity again, correct? Yes. Yeah, and so that's like a huge benefit, right? So we don't have all these kids who, or these people who have autoimmune disorders or can't get the vaccines are now pretty well protected from it. And when I sat down with my senator, Matt Dolan, one of the interesting things he brought up, he's just of the age where he goes, I remember kids got measles when I was younger. And I was like, yeah, do you remember what happened to them? And he's like, "Uh, you know, I don't exactly remember. I remember it was real convenience. Remember they had fevers, remember they were out of school. That's all I kind of remember about it. And one of the things I included in my packet to him was the damages that measles can do from a, obviously an online journal and things like that. And when you read some of those things, like the permit, like injuries or disfigurement or worst case death that can come from it, you're like, well, why aren't we doing our more, more to protect these people, especially people who have autoimmune disorders, because they tend to be high healthcare users as well. So it's a big dollars and cents thing that we can prevent from them and other people from getting it too. Yeah, so I thought that was a, I thought that was an interesting point because it was somebody who actually remembered people getting the measles and was like, well, I don't remember how bad it was. In fact, it was actually even joked about in a Flintstones episode way back in the day when I was doing a little bit of a history on some of this. I thought that was pretty interesting and might kind of add to the the fire of, well, hey, I don't need this. People used to have it. It's it's a quote unquote natural way. So. Right. Well, and I th- I think you know the public health community is actually its own worst nightmare and enemy in terms of the fact that they did such a good job with some of these things, right? People don't remember polio. They don't remember how scary it was for families. They don't remember iron lungs. They don't remember people lining up blocks and blocks and blocks to get that vaccine. Same thing with measles. I mean, we talk about measles and mumps and chickenpox. And when we work with residents, they've never even seen it. Mm-hmm. So when I was a kid, I mean, I'm in my early 40s. I, you know, I had chicken pox when I was really little. I remember friends having it. That's not even a thing anymore. I mean, people, you know, and, they, and people think, oh, those are harmless childhood diseases. Well, polio is scary, but, you know, the, the chicken pox and stuff, that's not that scary. You know, people die from that every year. I say yeah. that about flu. You know, that's, it's people who have already weakened immune systems, existing medical conditions, asthma, things like that, and young kids or the elderly, you have, you know, thirty to 40,000 people a year sometimes dying of the flu in the United States. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and people don't realize how deadly it actually can be. 
you know, and, you know, that vaccine, unfortunately, is not as effective as the other vaccines we have, which I think is one of the reasons people probably don't vaccinate for it as much. But to me, any immunity against something that could harm, you know, myself or my children, um, I have a lot of friends who have kids with asthma, you know, they're always asking, please, you know, to everyone in our community, please vaccinate your kids for flu because, you know, my children have asthma. I don't want them, you know, to have a problem and be hospitalized. Oh, yeah, for sure. One thing you kind of mentioned was the Impact CIS program. This was something that was new to me when I went to the uh, IANO meeting down in March. As a pharmacist, I like to pride myself for being pretty up to date, especially when it comes to vaccines and kind of what's going on in the world, what bills are being presented or not being changed. But the Impact CIS thing was new to me. I, I knew we reported to a system, but I didn't actually know that I could get access to it from my store. What is Impact CIS exactly? So it is a state registry that collects vaccine data. So when you actually vaccinate a child, you enter the lot number, the vaccine, uh, the vaccine they you know, were given, the patient's name. So if you ever need to find a, rec- a vaccine record for a child, you should be able to a- access ImpactSys and look it up. Unfortunately, though, it, you know, it's not, everyone's not in there. Some of the da- data is not accurate as well. They've done some, some updates and things like that to make sure there's some data cleaning issues. So if, you know, your name was Smith with a Y instead of an I, you know, mm-hmm. it might be in there twice. Or it might only show half your vaccines because half of them are injured under a different name. There's some, some issues like that that they have. But it is a registry that can be used more. It'd be great if there was a national yeah. registry. I think a lot of people have advocated for that at a federal level because in Ohio, any of the border areas, for example, you know, if you lived in Cincinnati, but maybe your doctor's in Kentucky, you're mm-hmm. not in the Ohio registry. You're just in Kentucky's. That's a very good point. Same with Indiana, same with West Virginia, same with Pennsylvania. So, or Michigan up in Toledo area. So it's, you know, different ones have different capabilities. Some of them get data dumped into them from a lot of the big health insurance plans. So like a month later, it's a delay, but they're in there. Some of that information gets entered into there so that you might see it, you know, in Kentucky and Ohio, for example, if you were in the Cincinnati area. So there's some different, you know, there's some challenges with it. It'd be great if it was on a national level. And then pharmacists who do, you know, some vaccinations for kids, I think it's 13 and over, 14 and over that they're able to do, and then flu down to seven, you know, they enter into different systems. So you all use things like ORs, right, to do reporting on on different drugs. You don't necessarily enter into the registry. And so I think some of the larger chains are talking about it, and they're doing it probably on the back end, so you wouldn't know they were actually doing it. Correct, exactly. Um, But when you're entering the data, right, they're filtering it and putting it in there. So, you know, it's a way to sort of track things and figure out where where people are. But since not everyone uses it, it becomes a challenge. And so some, you know, people will say, well, you know, maybe we make it mandatory that providers have to enter into it. And the challenge with that for some people is, especially smaller practices and not as much, I I don't think pediatricians as maybe family physicians, you know, they're one or two kind of physician practice, especially in rural areas. They don't have these very fancy big EMR systems, not like they do at like the children's hospitals or um, some of the other hospital systems. And so for them, it is in their, you know, their system doesn't interact with the registry. So they have to do dual entry. It's a lot of work. They're already doing a lot of paperwork if they do things like the vaccines for children program, which is free vaccine basically for children on Medicaid. If they're doing that paperwork, we don't want to put barriers in place where physicians or pharmacists or anyone who vaccinates says, you know, don't mandate that I have to enter into that when that's going to take me so much time. And then I'm just not going to vaccinate in my practice at all. I'm just not going to have them. I'll just send them to the health department. When we know when you send them to the health department, you know, there's a higher likelihood that they're not going to go and get those vaccines. Yeah, so we're one trying more trip. to make it easier. Yeah. 
And so we've said, you know, possibly the state could look into providing some incentives. So if your EMR doesn't talk to the, to the registry, is there a way that the state could, you know, pay for, for that integration to happen? So as part of, you know, the registry setup, could they invest in making sure that that, you know, that that happened? So there's no dual entry. And then it's just sort of something that everyone does because that's how their data system works. Yeah. And I really love that you hit on the fact that people have been pushing on it for a national level. I wasn't aware of that myself. I would love something like that because as an example, I have so many people who walk up to my counter and go, hey, my kid needs their vaccines to go to school. And they're in that demographic where we can give it to them. Where I go, okay, which ones do you need? I don't know. And then you're just kind of stuck there like, okay, well, which ones have you got? I don't know. Okay, I want to help you, but I can't help you if I don't have any information because I don't want to, you know, like double up on something that I didn't have to. Although in most cases, it obviously wouldn't hurt. I just don't want to have to do that because you don't necessarily need it. We can keep it and you can save some money and we can give it to somebody else who needs it. So I think that's real interesting. And we also have that problem. Think about kids who are like in the foster system. Oh, yeah. So they don't always have accurate information. Now, if they were seeing that one provider, sometimes they can keep the provider they were seeing beforehand. It just really depends on the situation and if they stay in the same county and everything else. They sometimes get vaccinated over and over again. Yeah. and Which is unfortunate. I mean, you're trying to protect this child, you know, and no one likes getting shots. Right. I mean, yeah, they're not the best. They are shot. So, you know, they're like you said, it's not going to harm them, but it's just unnecessary. It's a waste of money. You know, it's a waste of yeah. resources. When there's outbreaks, I mean, I even say, you know, I talk about polio all the time because everyone can remember. Like, see, I mean, I wasn't born, but you can remember seeing pictures of like the iron lungs and everything everyone went through. FDR, so one president. To, yeah, and I, I think back to was it 2000? And, I want to say it was 2008, 2009 era when we had H1N1. Mm-hmm you know, H1N1 flu. And people were really nervous about it when it came out because it was going to be, you know, very deadly and it was going to be really terrible. My family actually got it. You know, we were down for a week and a half. I mean, it was not, not a good one to have. But when that vaccine came out, people were lined up in the streets for it. Yeah. And one that you guys won't see in, you know? pe- in pediatrics as much, but we have at the pharmacy because the way the billing has changed with some of it was we're seeing Shingrix. Like, I mean, people are coming in like the walking dead trying to get a Shingrix shot. Like I've had people actually offer me cash to put them first in line to give them the shingle shot. And I'm like, right. well, we can't do that. That's an ethical line. You know, like we'll, we'll, well there do was, it in the I mean, order, there was but, a lot of that going on with H1M1 where they yeah. were saying, you know, the doctor's offices weren't getting them first. Pharmacists, you know, had them first because the bigger, you know, suppliers were getting them yeah. first, of course. And so, you know, how are they getting, you know, how, how fast could they get it? What they can get, get it? Do they know someone? I mean, people called here and say like, well, if I know someone, can I get access to it? Fa-? I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not how it works. Um, so it's like, I wish that demand for all the vaccines were there all the time. Yeah. And like, that's why I said, I think, you know, it's public health is sort of its own worst enemy because it's done <laughs> such a good job. People aren't afraid of vaccine preventable diseases. Yeah, I have a... Uh, they don't think they're that scary. They forget <laughs> that they actually were really bad. I have a friend who's a little bit on... She's a, actually a pediatric specialist in Indiana. Uh, some of you might know her. Her name is Jenny Donaldson. She's awesome. I forget which hospital she works with. She's in Indianapolis. And she has to deal a lot with the, the anti-vax parents who comes in. And she kind of says the same thing. We're, we're our own worst enemy. We want to try and take care of you so well we don't have to see you again. That's kind of like our goal, really, especially when you're talking about kids. And right. one of the funny things she always says is, you know, anybody who doesn't want a vaccine... We'll go put you and your family in a room with somebody who has that disease. If you're not willing to do that, then you truly believe in the vaccine. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of the more extreme end, but I think it's a good a good way to kind of phrase it of, you know, okay, if you don't want the measles vaccine, your family has to go stay with someone who has it. Are you willing to risk that? No? Then you should probably right. get the vaccine. Right. 
kind of a more extreme end. But I, th- I think it's really funny the way she always always phrases that one. So with that, kind of moving on to some of the, you mentioned some of the bills earlier and how there's always a little bit of legislation moving. What bills have you guys seen in regards to vaccinations, whether it be federal with something like an impact program or on the state a state level that is like kind of pro-vaccine? Because we've heard of a couple that are anti-vaccine. I want to pr- kind of promote the ones that are pro-vaccine. Or if there is one that's really bad anti-vax, you can bring that up too. So the one that's in this General Assembly is, you know, House Bill 132, which is a, vac- a bill that basically says schools have to tell everyone equally when they tell them that they there is a mandate for vaccines that they can also just opt out because they don't want to get them. And our concern about that bill is, you know, I think it was well-intentioned by the sponsor. The problem with it is it allows for what I would call a convenience waiver, meaning I'm really busy, I don't have time to get my child vaccinated, or I vaccinated my child and I don't have time to go get the forms all signed, so I'm just going to take that opt-out waiver. So if you tell me I can just opt out, I'm going to do that. And it's really, you know, I think about it as a parent, you know, like I said, I have two teenagers, so I go through camps every summer and I have to get all their forms filled out, you know, for three or four different camps. I have to have all their vaccine records, all their medical records. I do the same thing, you know, for school. It's sort of like the parents who actually do follow those guidelines and do the mandate as it's intended get punished because we have to then go and get all the paperwork filled out. So, you know, we're we're not the biggest fans of of that bill. And then there's also one, and there's introduced almost every every time, what's it, uh, Hospital 268, which is a a vaccine that would say um, hospital systems and others who require right now their employees to get vaccinated against the flu, um, that they would not be allowed to do that any longer or take any kind of adverse reaction, you know, like demoting them or firing them from the system if they weren't vaccinated. You know, I understand the personal liberties argument, I also understand you're working with a, you know, in a hospital setting with patients who are immunocompromised, cancer patients. I mean, think of in pediatrics working, you know, around those kind of kids. They can't afford for you to have the flu and be around them. Um, that's, that's deadly for them. So, you know, while I understand personal liberties, I probably wouldn't be a healthcare provider or a healthcare profession, professional in a hospital setting. So, you know, that's sort of how we, the stance we take on that. There is a bill coming up. Senator Williams and Senator Lehner are introducing one that mirrors what you've seen in some other states like New York, which would get rid of the religious and philosophical exemptions. Ohio is a very conservative state, very, so you know, very, like I said, personal freedoms, personal liberties focused. So we're not sure how that bill is going to be received. It's, you know, it's one of these unfortunate things where almost 15 years ago, we didn't have, we didn't have the philosophical. We did always have the religious. We've had that for decades. You know, we, I'd hate to see people misuse the religious one when it's really just for philosophical reasons, but I've been told that that's what used to happen. So, you know, that bill is out there. It's something we would support. We have introduced legislation in the past to at least have one uniform form, and it would require that every school have the same immunization you know, medical history form and a healthcare provider that can vaccinate. So that could be a physician, a nurse practitioner, a pharmacist, um, whoever, a public health department. If you wanted to opt out, they would sign the form after they had a conversation with you. So it wouldn't be the hour-long conversation that Michigan requires. It would just be making sure that that parent actually had a conversation with a healthcare provider about why they didn't want to vaccinate. The physician would not agree or disagree with your personal beliefs. They would just sign it saying, I had a conversation. Or they've been vaccinated and here's the vaccine record. Again, it just puts everyone on evil, even level playing ground in terms of those who want to opt out and those who don't. Everyone would have to get a form signed. Everyone would have to you know, show a record or not show a record. But it takes away that whole convenience waiver factor. It would also give us really accurate data. So there would be no more you know, of this unknown population. Yeah. We would know. And then in terms of things like if there's an access problem, we would really know it because we could see, okay, the schools have to turn in that information. They do it now. They turn it into the State Department of Health. 
we would be able to see if there are areas that are really struggling with vaccinations, and then how could we help? So, you know, is it as opting out because they don't like vaccines? Is it they don't have access to a healthcare provider, and maybe that health department isn't as active about, you know, bringing the mobile units to them? And if that's the case, how can we, you know, lobby either the Department of Health or the legislature to provide resources to those communities? So I think that, you know, that's to us is sort of the gold standard of what at least needs to happen as a first step in Ohio. So we need to get more accurate data, and we need to, you know, make sure that the people are at least aware of the decision they're making. Oh, yeah, for sure. When, when they choose not to vaccinate their child. Because, again, I, I think, you know, they read a lot of things. They don't realize how scary some things can be, especially for kids who might have things like, you know, asthma or some other, you know, pre-existing condition and, you know, how those diseases could really impact them. I mean, one of the, the first things that you tell a patient um, who has asthma or their, their family is that they need to get an annual flu shot. That's like a gold yeah. standard of care for them because it's, it can be life or death for them or it could especially be hospitalization. So when people want to talk about health care costs, I mean, the cost of, you know, the ED utilization for asthmatic patients is super high. Yeah. And you're talking about, you know, days and days in the hospital potentially if they were to contract, you know, influenza that year with asthma. And so, it's a, you know, it's it's recognizing all those things. I think just a lot of people don't know all, all the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff that goes into, you know, why we want to improve immunization rates. Oh, yeah, for sure. I actually really like the uh... – the Cleveland Clinic is kind of the one hospital that's really kind of, from what I know, started the whole you have to get vaccinated against the flu. And I totally agree with your point. I, I do believe that if you're in healthcare working with patients who could contract something, that is kind of your duty to help protect them. And part of your duty is to get something like a flu shot every year to make sure you, you do keep it from spreading because who knows if it is an H1N1 year. One of the things right. I always use with the flu shot is people go, how do we know that the strain's going to be active this year? And I go, well, if you trained for a football game, and happened to show up and it was a rugby match, at least you're prepared to play something close to it. And that's something that a lot of right. people start going, oh, that makes sense. Because, yeah, they are kind of related. The rules are different and maybe there's different strengths and weaknesses, but at least you're prepared for it. And that's one that I guess for, for lack of a better word kind of convinces a few people. Oh, yeah, I guess I should get it then. I should kind of train my body for it. I'm really glad to hear Senator Williams actually is proposing that because she's the one who represents the area right around where my store is. And it's an area that is a little bit underserved, is a little bit impoverished, impoverished and does have a lower vaccination rate versus some of the other the other areas that I've seen for like things like flu and some of the other vaccines. So I think that's really awesome of her to kind of take that lead to protect her constituents. I, I'm super on board with that. And the 132 bill, yeah, the personal exemptions. I, I, I personally like, I would probably go one step further than you guys, but I really love the, uh, the Mississippi and the California one, which are two very different states, but had the same result from very opposite political ends of the spectrum. Right. We, I mean, we've had that conversation. That's where, you know, people said, well, maybe the time is right to talk about that right now. Yeah. Um, we have felt, you know, just from testing the waters around some other issues and trying to get um, House Bill 559 passed last year, which was, you know, single form, and having how much opposition we faced. And again, it's a very loud minority yeah. that comes forward and says vaccines are terrible. You know, we should be afraid of them. And it's kind of, you know, how do we then combat that and get the proper, you know, information out there? And so we were like, we felt like an uphill battle with that. How would it be to introduce, you know, legislation that would mirror some of these other states, you know, New York, yeah. Mississippi, California, Washington State, Oregon, you know, and it's something, again, you know, we're, that's why we're looking at it. We'll certainly be supportive of Senator Williams and Lehner when everything comes out, because yeah. it is sort of the gold standard. I mean, it would really, obviously, move the needle quite a bit. Well, and, and the thing of it is, is it keeps people healthier. It keeps people, like, you know, being productive. It keeps people enjoying life as opposed to being in, in the hospital. We talk about health care bills. Well, if we can prevent them, 
we drive costs down right there. So yeah, I, I'm right. totally in, totally in agreement with you on that. But I like the idea that you took it one step at a time. Let's uniform. Let's make the form uniform, so we can kind of make, be consistent in what data we're tracking. That's a really good idea. Yeah. So you know, you kind of I kind of mentioned IANO. You mentioned your group, the Academy of Pediatrics. You also mentioned IANO. What are some other good ways that people can get involved, or what are some other good ways they can possibly reach out to their their legislators to kind of express their feelings on the pro-vaccine side to be kind of that more vocal majority, if you will. Yeah, we have a group that was started by some folks that we're now kind of supporting and helping move along called Parents Advocating for Vaccines. We've actually been contemplating changing it to People Advocating for Vaccines. We've had some people come and say, you know, I'm not a parent yet, especially some younger folks, and say, you know, I'm not a parent yet, but I, I care about a lot about vaccines. So we're considering, you know, a name change and everything. But there's just a group of people who is just, you know, regular everyday people. Some of them are pediatricians who are members. Some are just people out there who say I'm pro-vaccine. And um, if you join that group, so you can go to the Ohio AAP website, which is just ohioaap.org. You'll find the Parents Advocating for Vaccines group on there. Um, and you can join them. You can join on the website. You can join actually on social media. You'd find them on, on Twitter and you'll also find them on Facebook. And if you join them, they actually are going to be rolling out a whole program this year about how to contact your legislators, what are sort of talking points about vaccines, what are the common questions they have, you know, who, you, who is your legislator, how do, how do you get information to them quickly. They're going to be doing all of that work over the next year. So I think that's a really easy kind of go-to group to go to. If you're not, if you're younger than the age of 18, which is that's what that group is for, we're actually starting a, a program also called Teens Advocating for Vaccines. And Ethan Lindenberger, who has been on the news quite a bit, he's the young man who... Uh, his mom didn't vaccinate him, um, and he chose to vaccinate himself, and then he put it out there on social media. He's testified on Capitol Hill. He's talked quite a bit here in Ohio about it. He's been on national TV in the news. He actually is in Ohio still, but he's sort of co-leading that group for us. So that information is out there as well for people who you know want to be involved, whether depending on your age, basically which group you want to be involved with. But I think it's a great way to get people kind of thinking about it, and it doesn't require a lot of time commitment. You know, you get some emails, you follow it on social media so you see alerts and things like that and then if people want to have more in-depth conversations with legislators we're talking about having really an advocacy day for them so really kind of bringing out these you know everyday folks who who care about this issue to get involved yeah and i think ethan's a an awesome role model and representative for kids who are his age or younger and even people a little bit older i love the fact that he went and did his own research looked it all up, yeah. challenged the status quo that he was raised with to be like, look, I should probably get this and then went and did it. I feel like not even vaccines, a lot of people need to kind of take a step back and look at some of the, hey, why do I believe this? Question yourself a little bit and learn from it because you might find out you're right, but you also might find out that you were totally wrong. Right. Yeah, I think I think that that's awesome. I would love to have him on here just to kind of ask him how he went through that process. I, it kind of just blew up and I, I love the story, especially because as we're talking, Ohio is not the best state for it. And we have a lot of uh, vaccine-related issues or that could arise. And mm -hmm. so now we're looking at it as, hey, look, we have a role model right in our state. Like maybe he'd be a good person to kind of go around and help help educate people a little bit because I think he even has a TED Talk. That's pretty impressive for his age. So yeah. so with that, I, I really appreciate you hopping on here with me today to talk about vaccines. I'll probably do a follow-up episode kind of explaining some of the more of the facts around vaccines and things like that and kind of diving in some of the stats we mentioned. Uh, but where can people find you and your organization? So they can find us at www.ohioaap.org, or they can find us on uh, Facebook at Ohio uh, Pediatricians, Twitter at Ohio Pediatricians. I'm on those sites too. Um, my contact information is on our website. We're always happy to, to talk to people or answer any questions and, and kind of you know come together on this important health topic, but other topics that affect 
you know, kids as well. Great. Hey, thanks for joining me. It's kind of crazy to me that we've talked about vaccines as a political issue these days, but hey, that's the, the world we live in, I guess. So thanks for hopping on again, Melissa, and I appreciate your time. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Thanks, listeners. That's it for today, and have a great rest of your week.